94.1 KPFA in Berkeley, 89.3 KPFB in Berkeley, 88.1 KFCF in Fresno, and online at kpfa.org. The time is 3 p.m. Up next, cover to cover with Jennifer Stone. Get your money every Friday. Happy endings are the Divide up those in darkness from the ones who walk in light. Light them up, boys, there's your picture. Drop the shadows out of This is Jennifer Stone with Stone's Throw. Today is March the 8th. I'm usually on on Tuesdays, but this month, this week, I've got Friday, March the 8th, because it's International Woman's Day. Uh, Is that all we get a day? Oh, dear me. Mustn't be bitter. It's the fashion these days to be Beat. I was just listening to the last show about uh, about education, folks, about school as a recovering English teacher. I think I have a, a few things to offer. <laughs> I, I was going to talk about feminists as moms. I don't know why. I just thought that might be something different. Years and years ago... I met a young Irishman. He had just come to this country, and he was, oh, he was very positive, a darling boy. And uh, he said to me, he said, uh, Ms. Stone, he said, uh, uh-huh. he said, there are two sorts of women in your country. There are the feminists and the mothers. And I've been thinking about that for years and years. Uh, I brought with me a little essay called In Search of Manhood. It's all about, well, some of it's about my sons. And uh, there's a little epigraph at the top. Not epitaph, Jennifer, epigraph. (laughs) It's from Oscar Wilde. The greatest of the Irishmen, at least in my, my book. Oscar Wilde wrote, All men, oh, excuse me, all women become like their mothers. That is their tragedy. No man does. That's his. Uh, The other character in that play, uh, next line, goes on something about... uh, uh, that quote making no sense at all. I think it makes perfect sense. Uh, years ago, I led a weekly workshop for women writers, uh, and I thought I was making some sense. You know, um, it was the consciousness raising phase. I forget which wave it was. Uh, we were just trying to get things sorted. Mostly we talked about personal pain. Uh, my younger son laughed at us and he said, If there were no suffering, it would be necessary for you to invent it. My uh, older son said, Well, <laughs> Mom, just as long as you're having a nice time with your women friends. 
one of the women in the workshop uh, looked at my boys' bedrooms and concluded, uh, oh, male chauvinist piglets. I laughed. I was trying to be so upbeat, and I quoted Irma Bombeck. It is better to burn one boy's bedroom than to curse the darkness. Privately, I was furious. She was talking about my Apollo, my Dionysus. Fortunately for our forum, both boys were at home the night that this same woman locked her keys inside her car. As my boys handed her the retrieved key ring, I couldn't help saying, Ah, so streetwise, my studlets. At the risk of being unfashionable, I have to confess that the children are my raison d'etre for the very simple reason that they're us. It's just ego, as Shakespeare said, if thou wouldst be immortal, beget children. Of course, like any Irish mother, I'm scar tissue to the bone. My sons were born in 1960 and 62. Ah, let's see. I've been a single mother since 1966. If I remember, dear, I had a hell of a time with both pregnancies. It still seems a miracle to me that both my sons are alive, that they walk around in the world to this day. I care more about their personal happiness than about their political correctness. Oh, uh, <laughs> They they might carry a sign or wear a button demanding the right to get pregnant if I really, really nagged them. But I doubt that that would make my day. I hope, I hope they'll be structured anarchists sometime in their lives. Yes, I hope they reach that stage. The sort of thinkers who shoulder full responsibility for their own lives and for the society they live in. Yes, I remember, oh, gee, back in the day, Apollo reminded me of John Kenneth Galbraith, and Dionysus recalled, <laughs> well, shades of Bob Dylan, both are pragmatic. Now, after half a century, yes, half a century on this earth, I suppose that because I am prone to ideological excess, they seem to have followed the Greek middle way. If there's one thing their generation has learned, it is that romanticism kills. I think, yes, I think I can say that for them. Uh, I'm not quite sure. At the Great Peace March in San Francisco back in 1969, I remember that Dionysus, I call him Dionysus, was quick to point out to me that he didn't see how we could put a stop to the war. That would be the Vietnam War, folks. Even though there were thousands of us marching, yes, marching to the top of that hill in San Francisco. He looked around carefully and uh, the little kid, he could see we had no no guns. He knew about guns. He had carefully shown me that there was a big difference between 
toy guns, you know, the let's pretend objects, and the real thing. At the age of four, I remember he was concerned because I didn't seem to grasp metaphor. (laughs) He told me over and over that toy guns didn't work. They couldn't hurt. (sighs) He understood the principle of play. A few years later, he played a Vietnamese peasant during a street demonstration. I remember there was a skit. It was in Oakland. There was a mock bombing of Vietnam. It was outside the Oakland Induction Center. We were protesting the draft. It was very dramatic. And Joan Baez and her mother were arrested. And Oh, it was glorious, glorious. Actually... My boys had their eye on a large papier-mâché airplane. It was used for the mock bombing. They got to take it home with them. It hung in our bedroom. In their bedroom, actually. It was there for a year. Uh, (laughs) The agonies of my kids' adolescent years were not the sort I have... uh, Well, I I had been led to expect something different. I was ready for the clichés. Uh... I think that my children themselves, uh, my two boys, were much less upsetting to me than my male friends, lovers, whatever. Uh, Many of those folks uh, felt it was their duty to tell me what it was I was doing wrong. Uh, Even some of their school teachers, indeed... Now, I was born in 1933, and most of my male contemporaries belong to the phallocentric set. Uh, They hadn't been deconstructed. Now, that's not altogether their fault, they kept telling me, yes. Any more than my own addiction to romanticism is altogether my own, well, my responsibility, but all of us are victims of historical inevitability, as <laughs> one of my sons said, ah, I was the victim of a liberal education, you know, progressives, the sort of people who think that things get better if you try. Once a visiting swain, an ex-marine, barged into the kitchen while I was trying to fix dinner, demanding to know whether I was aware that my boys were taking a shower together. Well, I said they did that every night. Uh, He went on to tell me how they might develop what he called bad habits. Oh, I said, they already have those. They get water all over the bathroom floor and drop towels. I tell them to shower at the same time so there'll only be one mess to clean up. It'll be your fault, said my gentleman caller. If they turn queer, that was a word I think we have heard the last of. Uh, That may be the last time I ever heard it. Certainly the last time I ever saw that gent. (laughs) Colette, the great French writer Colette, used to call men her dear enemies. In recent years, uh, I've come around to that view, I mean... 
Let's just face it. Men and women don't worship the same gods. Women prefer love to power. Men confuse the two. I think, what is that? When we say men and women, I think I must change that. Call it masculine principle and feminine principle because we've learned in the decades uh, since this time, this time when my kids were young, we have learned that uh, there are male feminists and there are a lot of uh, female masculinists. Mm-hmm. In general, it is masculine or it is a fellow-centric point of view to distinguish uh, lust from love. Yes, women do confuse the two. Remember reading poor uh, Charlotte Bronte, yes. She went to visit Thackeray, and he made all these jokes. Oh, dear, poor Charlotte. She did confuse lust with love. Ah. Now, today... Most of us distinguish the sensual from the spiritual. Uh, we're still making this classic error. It's a Western civilization, I think. Uh, mind, body, cross. Actually, I was listening to George Lakoff today uh, on one of the other radio stations. And it drives me nuts to realize that in my lifetime, most of the words I use have changed their meaning. So drastic, so drastically. Uh, we have to define our terms over and over again. Uh, I guess gender relations are like all the human relations. Uh, we have these tribal, national relations. Everything depends upon finding some common ground. Uh, you know, uh, I always associate feminism with communism, but I find that that's difficult for a lot of people, too. Uh, communists have babies. Uh, communists have uh, just about everything women have. Yes, men and women both want love. This does not mean that any of us give up our independence or our selfhood. We certainly paint ourselves into a corner with our language. I guess what I'm trying, struggling to say, is that equal does not mean the same. Mutuality need not be based on similarity. I mean, I worry about, well, I'm a poet, I worry about the integrity of the image cluster. And Apollo, one of my sons. Apollo worries about the mobility of the quarterback. What we have in common is worry. It's enough. <laughs> See, the biggest problem for me, for those of us who do word work, our biggest problem is the language itself. What I call sex-mantics. I can't even define power. In general, women call it capacity. You know, I have the capacity for love, the power to love. Men call it clout. <laughs> yes, wham. There's a lot of linguistic cement in the cerebral cortex these days, and it leads to a hardening of the categories. 
Words like warrior and wimp don't mean much if you apply them to Attila the Hun and Jesus Christ. Over the years, as these feminist waves have washed us up to the new shores, yes, over the years, the study of men and women and their respective gods and their tribal ways and their ceremonial customs, it's all become, I call it, a new cultural anthropology. There was an old joke in <laughs> in in my college days, yes. One of my teachers, an anthropologist, told us, he said, well, men learn from the animals and women learn from the plants, which is why women sit down and men stand up. Sorry, bad joke. Uh, the truth is that when I began raising children in the beginning, I was probably more afraid my sons would grow up to be unmanly, to be what we called in those days sissies. I was probably more worried about that than I later feared that their macho moments would offend my feminist friends. I wanted them to be safe. The fact is that in patriarchy, real danger comes from other men. It is males who castrate, males who do the damage. Any male who doesn't learn to compete, for compete read defeat, any male who doesn't learn to compete with his brothers is likely to be cut up by them. Now, uh... This is still a problem. The nature of the problem has changed, but uh, not a great deal. When I talk about primate hierarchy in these terms, when I express my primitive fears, some of my male friends call it a gender bender. Some of my women friends label it counter-revolutionary. I guess they're both right, but in the long run, blood is thicker than backlash. And while I want my sons to be great souls, Mahatmas, I also want them to survive. Now, I don't know, there's a, a second thought I have here. I also want them to survive, and this is true when I think of women. I have just recently acquired a, a kind of goddaughter. She's really a, a uh, she would be a great, a great-grandchild if she were blood kin, but she's kith, kith and kin, you know. This goddaughter, uh, yes, she is an... Uh, descendant of sorts. She's a beauty. Anyway, uh, I'll talk more about her uh, one of these days, but uh, I certainly wouldn't want her to, what is that, uh, to be unhappy in life and whatever brings her the greatest happiness. Yes. I don't want to be one of those kind of fairy godmothers like uh, Dorothy Parker, right? Dorothy Parker's fairy godmother. She's the one who said, I give her sadness and the gift 
of pain, the new moon madness, and the love of rain. I don't want her to be sad or to have a, a tragic, romantic life. I want her to be happy and survive. I believe... I believe a lot of things. I certainly believe that men are equal to women in many things, but certainly not in the area of nonviolence, a skill almost exclusive to women since human history began. I think it has something to do with hormone levels. We are all these biological units programmed to devour other biological units and much of the devouring is done by males who suffer from testosterone overdose. And, of course, the responsibility for all that goes right back to a woman, to Mother Nature. <laughs> when you get right down to basics. I guess the feminine principle is behind everything. It's not that women can't kill most women eat as much per pound as their brothers. It's just that they need a reason, a reason to slaughter things, you know. They need food for the baby, that sort of thing. Uh, sport eludes them, well, most of them. Only a handful of women go hunting compared to the incredible number of males who stalk the woods and shoot just for the fun of it. It is true that women murder from time to time, usually in self-defense. Uh, in my scholarship, uh, let's see, I have come up with the number 85%. Most of the uh, scholars I have read say that 85% of the time the mayhem is uh, comes from men, yes, uh, homicides, you know. Fifteen percent is uh, the women. Wars are still almost exclusively a male privilege. Uh, macho can kill you. I think of the tragic lives of my father and my brother. Uh, it was a strange thing. They didn't, uh, so far as I know, they did not kill in the wars, my father is World War Two, but he was a doctor. It was the death he saw, I think, that did him in. My brother is the Vietnam War. That was his undoing. It seems that men, too, are damned if they do and damned if they don't. We know that the damned if they do set includes those patriarchal big daddy types the ones who try to escape pain and death by identifying with an all-powerful, immortal Father God. Ah, oh, yes, a myth. The one who will save them from decay and the inevitable return to Mother Earth. These are the men with the structured belief systems. They hope they can control life and death. They believe in law and order and a big black boot. They believe, some of them, that they can play God. I have another footnote here. I think that the terror that so many uh, masculinist people 
uh, find when they come to the issue of abortion. The terror they feel is the fear that woman is playing God. She is deciding who shall live and who shall die. That can scare the pants off you. Ah. Anyway, the damned if they don't set includes those men, I think of them as young men's sons, the ones who are victims of Big Daddy. They are used as cannon fodder. They promote the primate grandiosity of the patriotic scoundrels. Now, they have gone to graveyards since wars began, since warriors began. They, too, come to believe in a God-hero principle. They, too, are looking for the love of an abstract father, sometimes of a real father. Yes, I remember, I keep mentioning here on the airwaves the uh, son of bin Laden, the one who said that he changed, his feeling about his father changed when his father told him to uh, uh, seek jihad, to give his life for uh, the cause of Islam, right? Uh, that's when the son decided it was time to break ranks. Anyway, yes, I think sometimes of those male children in the Middle East, the ones who wear those symbolic keys to heaven around their necks. They have the key there in case they die in battle. Key lets them into the promised land, their promised land. And then there are those neo-Nazi men, the ones who wanted to join their fathers in Valhalla. Each culture, tribe, nation has a kind of warrior heaven. And so far, it's strictly a men's club. Uh, the poet Robert Bly believed that men wanted to break out of the force field of women and return to the stout arms of their fathers. Sigmund Freud felt this was the reason why God became a guy at some point in our human history, that is, the infinite the uh, mystery, the great mystery, the inexpressible, the thing we call God, the infinite became a father figure in the hope of immortality. Men reach out to their father, to the great metaphor, their father who art in heaven, who will help them escape their mother who brought them forth and is sure to remind them that they must, in the end, suffer dissolution, return to the uh, <laughs> the cauldron, the grail. What's behind all this? What are these guys doing to each other, and why? The psychologist Phyllis Chesler, in her book About Men, writes, Even now, when the fathers kill their sons at home at war, the psychologists say, oh, but the father really meant to kill his own father, the child's grandfather. It was only a case of mistaken Oedipal identity. Young soldiers lie dead, sent there by commanding father figures. How proud, how sad their fathers are. Their fathers, who never meant them any harm. What all this says to me is that is no good looking for gods at all. 
especially when they when we discover that they turn out to be our parents. Religion is all metaphor, after all. At its best, it's a poetic longing for transcendence. And at its worst, it's an excuse to murder non-believers. Our gods are projections of our needs and desires. Oh, I wish I could tell you the rest of this um, story all about... Uh, what we need to do to outgrow the gods and devils that torture us. I'm uh, hopeful that my children are not into gods. I will be back on the air uh, next Tuesday. This has been Jennifer Stone. Till then, go easy. And if you can't go easy, go as easy as you can. On Sunday, March 17th, be at Laney College Theater in Oakland for the film premiere of a new talk by Bob Avakian, B.A. Speaks, Revolution, Nothing Less. Here's Cornell West. My dear brother, Bob Avakian, he is the chairman of the Revolutionary Communist Party, a legendary freedom fighter, one of the few coming out of the 60s who never sold out, he never gave up, held on to his forging of a rigorous scientific analysis driven by a revolutionary love. Poor people, oppressed people. Whether you agree or disagree with our brother, one thing you cannot deny, that he is the real thing. Sunday, March 17th, 1 to 8 p.m., Laney College Theater, Oakland, the premiere of B.A. Speaks, Revolution, Nothing Less, a benefit for Revolution Books, co-sponsored by Media Freedom Foundation.